Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Poet's Table. I'm Austin Smith, and this morning we're going to spend some time with the great poet Jane Kenyon. So just to tell you a little bit about Jane Kenyon before I share some poems by her, Jane Kenyon was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She attended the University of Michigan, getting both a BA and an MA from that university, and when she was a student there studying poetry, she met her future husband, who was actually her teacher, another great American poet named Donald Hall, whose work we may explore at some point on Poet's Table. After their marriage, Kenyon and Hall moved to an ancestral farm uh, that Hall's family owned in New Hampshire. And this became a place for both of them uh, of great import in their work and their lives. Kenyon wrote only four books of poems in her life. Her life was tragically short. She died at the age of 47 of leukemia. And it's really remarkable how much she wrote in such a short time um, and how much she has impacted uh, American poetry in living such a, a tragically short life. Her first books actually took up a different kind of illness. Um, she suffered her whole life from uh, very extreme clinical depression. And I think you'll, you'll find when I share with you the poems I'm going to share today that many of her poems are almost like prayers um, in which she is uh, struggling with huge questions, um, existential questions about sorrow and happiness and what it is to be on earth. And I think similarly to her uh, struggles with depression, many of her late poems um, relate to, of course, her mortality and her sense of um, the fact that she had, unfortunately, a short time left to live um, after her diagnosis. Her husband, Donald Hall, was also diagnosed with cancer, and so they both lived in this um, very charged and uh, difficult place of having cancer diagnoses and yet working furiously and writing about one another and their life together. After Jane Kenyon passed away, uh, Donald Hall wrote a beautiful kind of book-length poem called Without, um, a, basically a, a long elegy about Jane Kenyon. And Donald Hall, just to tell you a little bit more about him, lived deep into his 90s and uh, continued writing poems and essays right up to the very end of his life. A, quite a triumphant life, I'd say. If you're um, curious, I really recommend looking up a picture of Donald Hall, um, particularly in his last years where he just let his hair and beard go <laughs> and uh, really, I think, of, you know, embraced the role of the um, sort of crazed older poet. And uh, his, his life is also a, a triumph, I think, in American letters. So... Living on this uh, ancestral farm with her husband, uh, nature clearly held great significance for Kenyon. Um, she wrote um, actually a newspaper column for their local paper, and so her prose is very beautiful. She also became obsessed with uh, the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova, and she translated many of Akhmatova's poems. And I think that, as happens often when a, a poet becomes interested in a poet who writes in a different language and begins to translate them. Much of Akhmatova's um, 
tone and style kind of seeped into Kenyon's work. And I, I assume one could probably look at her work prior to the translations of Akhmadova and after and find a difference there. Um, and then Hall, and if you're interested in Hall and Kenyon's life, um, there's a great Bill Moyers documentary about them, and the title is slipping my mind at the moment, but if you search Bill Moyers, Jane Kenyon, Donald Hall, I'm sure it will come up. And uh, it's a really beautiful um, short, I believe, film about their life together in poetry. I've read that Kenyon would work in one room and Hall would work in the other, and they would get together at certain points of the day and share drafts with one another. So their relationship was was definitely um, very, very tight when it came to their artistic uh, work. And Kenyon's work, I'd say, is a little less verbose than Hall's. And um, you'll see, I think, that she is a very careful writer. Um, there's a lot of silence in her work, and she leaves a lot unsaid. So now that I've given you a bit of an introduction to her, um, I would like to share with you, if we have time today, three poems by her. And the first poem I'd like to share is called Happiness. So again, this is Happiness by Jane Kenyon. There's just no accounting for happiness or the way it turns up like a prodigal who comes back to the dust at your feet having squandered a fortune far away. And how can you not forgive? You make a feast in honor of what was lost and take from its place the finest garment which you saved for an occasion you could not imagine. And you weep night and day to know that you are not abandoned that happiness saved its most extreme form for you alone. No, happiness is the uncle you never knew about who flies a single-engine plane onto the grassy landing strip, hitchhikes into town, and inquires at every door until he finds you asleep mid-afternoon, as you so often are during the unmerciful hours of your despair. It comes to the monk in his cell. It comes to the woman sweeping the street with a birch broom, to the child whose mother has passed out from drink. It comes to the lover, to the dog chewing a sock, to the pusher, to the basket maker, and to the clerk stacking cans of carrots in the night. It even comes to the boulder in the perpetual shade of pine barrens, to rain falling on the open sea, to the wine glass weary of holding wine. This is, I think, a, a really, um, beautiful poem in that it personifies happiness as sort of the prodigal son from the Gospels, um, the son who goes off and makes a mess of things and then um, is welcomed back by his father with open arms. Um, and this is what she sees as happiness um, being like. Uh, happiness has left the poet and now has returned um, to the dust at your feet, having squandered a fortune far away. So how can you not forgive happiness and make a feast in its honor? And she uses a lot of the imagery from that story of the prodigal son, um, you know, taking the finest garments and making this big feast and sort of celebrating the return of happiness. Um, and this is a, a beautiful poem, I think, in that the opposite of the poem, of course, is her depression and sorrow and we get a sense of her, the depths of her depression through the ecstatic language of her description of what happiness 
returning feels like for her. And then I think what makes a great poem is um, specificity and this memorable imagery and um, a refusal to work in generalities. So the poem could just end with, you know, that line that I read. And by the way, this poem is available online. It's, again, Happiness by Jane Kenyon, if you'd like to follow along. The second stanza ends with, And you weep night and day to know that you are not abandoned, that happiness saved its most extreme form for you alone. That would be a decent poem, I think, and I would still probably like it enough to share it this morning. But the poem goes on. There's this wonderful turn in the poem and this tone of, No, happiness is the uncle you never knew about. And she imagines this strange uncle who flies a single-engine plane, lands on a grassy landing strip, hitchhikes into town, and inquires at every door until he finds you asleep mid-afternoon, as you so often are during the unmerciful hours of your despair. So this kind of wild, legendary uncle who has been flying this dangerous plane and not only flies to you, but then hitchhikes to you and then inquires at every door to find you, that's what happiness is like. Um... Happiness is like that uncle, which is just a really, really great metaphor. She doesn't just say happiness is like the uncle you never knew about. She creates this narrative and this story that is extremely memorable, I think. Personifying happiness. Happiness is related to us um, like an uncle that we didn't even know existed and shows up one day while we're asleep in mid-afternoon uh, just trying to get through maybe a spell of depression and then she goes on and says, you know, happiness does not just come to you, but to the monk in his cell, to the woman sweeping the street with a birch broom, to the child whose mother has passed out from drink. It comes to the lover, to the dog chewing a sock, to the pusher, to the basket maker, and to the clerk stacking cans of carrots in the night. I think you'll notice in a, another poem of Kenyon's that I'm going to share that she is really great at repetition in her poems, and she creates a kind of spell when she starts to repeat um, certain phrases. In this case, it comes, it comes, it comes. And I just love, again, the specificity of it doesn't just come to the clerk. It comes to the clerk stacking cans, and not just cans, but cans of carrots, and not just cans of carrots, but in the night. So she's really, you know, helping us to imagine this particular clerk in this particular moment of his or her life. And then she says it even comes to the boulder, boulder spelled B-O-U-L-D-E-R. So it even comes to a rock in the perpetual shade of pine barrens. And that idea that a boulder can be happy is a really uh, strange and almost mystical uh, belief in how inanimate objects might actually hold spirit. Um, terrain falling on the open sea. And then, you know, of all the images we've been given... She chooses this image of the wine glass, weary of holding wine, W-E-A-R-Y. I love the idea of um, a glass getting tired. I've never thought of that before. Um, a glass has this purpose, right, of holding a beverage. It could hold water, it could hold beer, it could hold wine in this case. And happiness comes to that wine glass, weary of holding um, a substance or a, a beverage that we think of as um, Get imbuing us with happiness, at least for a while. Um, and it's just a, a very sympathetic um, 
literally she's in sympathy with um, this, this object that is holding this wine. I've been thinking about a lot of people will compare Jane Kenyon to the poet John Keats, who died young as well, um, of, a, of an illness. He died of tuberculosis at 26. And John Keats once said in a letter that he had the ability to kind of, kind of um, put himself into inanimate objects in a sympathetic way. So he said that he could even get a feeling for what it would be like to be a billiard ball rolling across the table. Um, he had this ability to kind of put himself into other creatures and other objects, and that's, that's to me, the definition of sympathy. So Kenyon has that ability as well. So let's think of another poem here um, that uses repetition, and this poem is called Let Evening Come. It may be her most famous poem. So again, um, I just want to remind you that you're listening to Poets' Table with Austin Smith on WDRT out of Viroqua. And today we're spending some time with the great American poet Jane Kenyon and um, considering right now her poem, Let Evening Come. Let Evening Come. Let the light of late afternoon shine through chinks in the barn, moving up the bales as the sun moves down. Let the cricket take up chafing as a woman takes up her needles and her yarn. Let evening come. Let dew collect on the hoe abandoned to long grass. Let the stars appear and the moon disclose her silver horn. Let the fox go back to its sandy den. Let the wind die down. Let the shed go black inside. Let evening come. To the bottle in the ditch, to the scoop in the oats, to air in the lung, let evening come. Let it come as it will, and don't be afraid. God does not leave us comfortless, so let evening come. You can also find this poem on the Poetry Foundation website, which is a great resource for many of the poems I'm going to share um, on Poets' Table. This poem, as you can hear, is um, practically a prayer um, of acceptance and saying kind of, <laughs> bring it on, bring on all these things um, that we might associate with. Uh, um, and I think some of the imagery we might associate with uh, death or um, a sense of endings. And so she's, she's accepting this, these changes. Um, and I don't know when she wrote this poem, but I imagine it may have been after either her diagnosis with like leukemia or her husband's diagnosis with lung cancer. Again, I'll just read it one more time, and then we can talk a little bit more specifically about some of the moves she makes in the poem and why I think it's so phenomenal. So again, Let Evening Come by Jane Kenyon. Let the light of late afternoon shine through chinks in the barn, moving up the bales as the sun moves down. Let the cricket take up chafing as a woman takes up her needles and her yarn. Let evening come. Let dew collect on the hoe abandoned in long grass. Let the stars appear and the moon disclose her silver horn. Let the fox go back to its sandy den. Let the wind die down. Let the shed go black inside. Let evening come. To the bottle in the ditch, to the scoop in the oats, to air in the lung, let evening come. Let it come as it will, and don't be afraid. God does not leave us comfortless. So let evening come.
So just like a great musician who recognizes that a, a song needs a, a break or a change, um, oftentimes the bridge of a song will be sort of different and even sometimes some, somewhat awkward um, so that then the chorus can come back and it's satisfying when it does. Um, I think you can hear in the second to last stanza that she reverses the order. Instead of starting the stanza with let, she starts it with to the bottle in the ditch, to the scoop in the oats, to air in the lung, and then ends with let evening come. And I, I just think it's a beautiful variation um, because, of course, one of the risks of repetition is that it becomes merely repetitive. Um, so it's just a kind of brilliant move, I think. And then there's this moment at the very end of the poem, if you're following along, if you're able to online, you'll see in the very last stanza, and I'll just snap where the line breaks are so you can hear it. Let it come as it will, and don't be afraid. God does not leave us comfortless, so let evening come. The way the line is broken, the middle line of that tercet, which is a three-line stanza, which is how this poem is written, is be afraid, God does not leave us. I love that because as a as a phrase on its own, it's saying some contradictory things, right? It's saying be afraid, even though the previous line said don't be afraid. We can read this line itself as be afraid, God does not leave us. Um, and that just that contrast, I think, is very interesting. And another thing that I want to point out about the poem is there is a, a great word in the poem, and if we were in a classroom, I would ask my students to point out the poem that most, or the, uh, the, the word that most surprised them. And I've never been able to see this word. I don't see this word often, come to think of it. But I think that she took a word that is kind of rarely used and made it such that um, you really can't imagine a better choice of word in this moment. And that is the word disclose. Let the stars appear and the moon disclose her silver horn. It's a really strange image because I think we oftentimes think of the moon as resembling all these things, right? So moon looks like a sickle or a scythe. Um, a moon looks like an eyelash. A moon looks like a pumpkin. There are all kinds of metaphors for the moon, but this idea that the moon could disclose, in other words, reveal her silver horn as if she is not, she, she is not a silver horn herself, but she owns one and she's disclosing it, um, is very strange. And, and what horn are we talking about? Horn is a word that has a homophone, which means a word that, um, I might be getting this wrong, but this is a word that um, sounds like another word, but is has a different meaning. In this instance, horn um, is spelled the same way in both instances. So um, what I'm getting at is it could be a musical horn, or it could be a horn like in at the top of a cow's head. And uh, we don't know from the context of of the poem. I mean, if it's silver, it's it's likely that it's a some kind of musical instrument that the moon is disclosing. But I always think of a, I do see a kind of horn-like shape in the moon um, when it's waning. So uh, it's, and of course the moon is silver. So what I'm trying to get at is just, there's so much packed into this line. And um, 
I often tell my students that there's a difference between complexity and confusion. And I feel like this is just a really complex line. It's not confusing. It doesn't stop me in any way. It doesn't distract me, but it has so much in it that I can unpack. And the stanza that I most, I think, admire, if I had to choose, would be the stanza I read earlier, to the bottle in the ditch, to the scoop in the oats, to air in the lung, let evening come. So these are, um, these are actually images of emptiness. So a bottle in the ditch is empty. Um, a scoop in the oats, to scoop oats for, like, for a horse, um, has the only reason it works is that it has an emptiness to it that can be filled by the oats. And then the lung is, is empty, but it has air in it. And um, it's a strange thing. It's not breath in the lung. It's air in the lung, which is somewhat haunting because we don't know whether the lung is breathing. So to these things that are empty, inherently empty, and that need to be empty in order to work, like the bottle has to be empty to be filled, the scoop needs to be empty to scoop the oats, um, the lung needs to be empty for air to come in and out. She's saying, let evening come to all of these things. Let it come as it will, and don't be afraid. God does not leave us comfortless, so let evening come. Um, it kind of reminds me of, uh, I, I shared uh, the poet Jared Carter in an earlier poet's table, and he has a book of poems called um, Work for the Night is Coming, which I, I think it's a quote maybe from the Bible. Work for the night is coming. And I think that this is, that, that sort of implies, you know, um, work while you can because death is, is, is imminent um, for all of us. In this instance, maybe evening is also a symbol of the end or of death. And this is a poet who is accepting um, that this evening must fall for all of us. And um, all the images in the poem of light, of the cricket, of the woman um, with her yarn, of dew collecting on the hoe abandoned in long grass, the stars, the fox, the wind, the shed, the bottle, the scoop of in the oats, the air in the lung, all of these things um, either are obliquely connected to human beings or are, are totally separate from us. But what is interesting is that she is basically inviting the end of, of things to these things. She's saying that these things um, are... They exist now and they may not in the future, and that's okay. Um, and so she's kind of offering up the world to oblivion, which I think is, uh, it's again, a great prayer. And um, she doesn't explicitly say it in the poem, but she's almost inviting evening to come to herself, I think, by writing about all these, these objects and characters in such a way. And then finally, um, we're going to look at a poem called Otherwise, again, by Jane Kenyon, and you can also find this poem online. And I think it has a similar tone and maybe message to let evening come. Otherwise, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. 
it might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know, it will be otherwise. Again, we have that repetition um, of it might have been otherwise, and then we have the variation on the repetition with, but one day I know it will be otherwise. What's really fascinating about this poem to me is um, it's a poem of gratitude in the, you know, probably in the face of, again, I wonder whether she might have written this poem after her diagnosis. And so there's something uh, really brave about being so grateful in the face of uh, calamity. And just to maybe read it once more, um, because I have less to say about this poem, I think it speaks for itself. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. In the fourth to last and third to last and second to last lines, she uses the word day in each. And I think the end of this poem is, um, it's strange because it's somewhat expected when you read it, you're like, of course, um, this is the turn the poem's gonna make, saying that one day it will be otherwise, one day these um, blessings will not be true. And yet one doesn't feel like um, there's any feeling of fear or encroaching tragedy. I mean, it, it feels to me like even, in the, even on that day, when things are otherwise, um, there will be gratitude for what has, has come to pass in the, in the past, and maybe even in that moment. Um, it doesn't feel like a, a poem of great fear, like we have to hang on to these things now because they're all going to change one day. I mean, that might be part of the message, but it seems to me much more just a, a poem of gratitude and a poem of acceptance in the same way that Let Evening Come is a poem of acceptance. And it's a, it's a poem that's very worldly. It um, recognizes the almost mundane pleasures of being alive, um, getting up and being able to stand, uh, eating cereal, eating a peach, taking the dog for a walk, being able to do work that we love and that we find some value in, having a partner who we love, um, eating dinner together, sleeping in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls. So it's interesting, the poem begins with getting out of bed and ends with sort of the end of the day. And it really brings us through the day, right? Um, there's breakfast, there's the walk, there's the work, there's a nap, there's dinner, and then back in bed and planning another day, just like this day. But despite our best intentions and despite our desire for a good day to repeat itself, we know that one day I know it will be otherwise. So that's Otherwise by Jane Kenyon. And um, today, just to remind us, uh, I began talking about happiness <laughs> in general, but also the poem Happiness by Jane Kenyon. 
And then we moved on to Let Evening Come, and finally, Otherwise. So I hope that you've enjoyed the time we've spent uh, with one of my very favorite poets, um, Jane Kenyon. I hope that you'll seek out her work. A good book to begin with is the book titled Otherwise, in which the poem Otherwise appears, um, if you're just looking for a place to start. So again, I really appreciate you spending your Friday morning, at least half an hour of it, with me, Austin Smith, on Poet's Table. And I hope that you all have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to WDRT, Viroqua. WDRT is sponsored in part by Vernon Communications Cooperative, a local communication cooperative since 1950, serving members with fiber-powered television, telephone, and internet, and promoting economic development throughout the region. More at vernoncom.coop. Support for WDRT comes from United Country Oakwood Realty, located in downtown Viroqua. United Country specializes in selling lifestyle properties in and around rural towns and cities nationwide. United Country Oakwood Realty.